Although COVID-19 has reached every corner of the world, the impact and devastation will not be shared equally. Like all public health emergencies, those most vulnerable in society will bear the brunt of morbidity and mortality, including damage to mental health. In the U.S., it is hard to think of a more vulnerable population than the people incarcerated in its overcrowded jails and prisons, who often suffer from high levels of baseline mental illness. How are the mental health conditions and their incarcerated patients coping with COVID-19? We'll have that story and more coming up. From the Lancet Psychiatry in New York, I'm Dustin Graham. Stay with us. Rikers Island sits on the East River of New York City, tucked between Queens and the Bronx, and is the city's largest jail complex. As New York continues to deal with the COVID-19 crisis, there is growing concern that Rikers will be particularly hard hit. Like other jails in the U.S., those incarcerated at Rikers Island have a high prevalence of mental illness and are living in cramped conditions, making them not only highly vulnerable to infection, but also to further psychological distress and trauma owing to COVID-19. On the line with us today to talk about what it's like working as a psychiatrist at Rikers during these challenging times is Dr. Lauren Stossel, Senior Psychiatrist at Correction Health Services in New York City. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. To get started, could you tell us briefly a bit about where you work and the population of patients that you work with? Yeah, so um, I work in the general population clinic at AMKC, which is the largest jail on Rikers Island. Um, Because we're an intake facility, we have lots of patients who touch down at AMKC immediately following arrest, um, and they're screened for mental health issues. So uh, for new patients, I'll do a psychiatric assessment, come up with a treatment plan, and then sort of triage them to a housing area that is most appropriate to their mental health needs. Um, And then I also see some patients who live in the general population at Rikers for ongoing care for medication management. And these patients tend to be a little bit uh, higher functioning, have sort of an easier time functioning independently in the jail setting and tend to have more well-controlled psychiatric illness or milder psychiatric illness. Before we talk about how things are right now with COVID-19, in order to put things into perspective, I was hoping you could give us some context about how things work at Rikers normally. And by that, I mean before COVID-19. When you work with patients who are incarcerated at a place like Rikers, what are the challenges in providing good treatment and what kinds of outcomes are you trying to achieve? Jail is a really difficult place to be, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, the challenges and successes are, are pretty similar with psychiatric care in the community. I would say there are particular challenges related to treating people with serious mental illness in the jail setting. But because most of my patients are healthier and a little bit higher functioning, I'm going to sort of leave those aside. For me, the first set of good outcomes I'm hoping for are really basic. I want to be making an accurate diagnosis, offering appropriate treatment, and making sure that the patient understands and feels comfortable with whatever plan we're making together. A lot of the patients I see in the general population have come in with diagnoses in the community that aren't really right for them. Sometimes they come in and they say, I have schizophrenia, but when you take a history, they've really only had psychotic symptoms when they've been using drugs. Or they say that they have bipolar polar disorder and they're taking all of this medication, but 
what they're actually describing are mood swings or really severe anxiety or trauma-related symptoms, and they've never actually had a manic episode. So for me, you know, helping a patient make sense of their symptoms and making a diagnosis that feels right for them um, means that we can come up with a treatment plan that really targets what's bothering them, and that feels like a success. And then that also means that we're separating out sort of treatable mental illness from all of the difficulties that are associated with just being in jail. So, you know, people will sometimes say to me, I just feel so angry right now. I've I've been feeling so angry ever since I've been arrested. Can you give me something that's going to just take that away? And I usually tell them, I I wish I could. If we had a pill that got rid of anger, you know, the world would look like a really different place. A lot of the work I do is around helping people have realistic expectations of their treatment, particularly their medications. If people have unrealistic expectations, they're inevitably going to be disappointed and really frustrated. They may give up on mental health treatment altogether. If someone has a realistic expectation of their treatment, that's a good outcome to me. And then, of course, if the treatment is effective, that's a good outcome. And what about the challenges of providing treatment? There are many. It's hard to help somebody process trauma in a place where they continue to be at risk of experiencing violence. It's hard to help somebody work on ways to relax if their hypervigilance is keeping them safe from from peers or from, you know, other sort of sources of danger in the jail. And it's hard to encourage somebody to cope with stress, with anxiety, with depression when the things that help us all cope the internet, taking a walk, a bath, spending time with families, snuggling a pet, having a drink with a friend, you know, none of that is possible for them. So, so those things are really hard. And, and then the last thing I would say is I think um, it's challenging to, to sit with somebody in their pain. Going into psychiatry, we want to alleviate psychic distress. But I think when people are up against the degree of adversity that many people are up against in jail, they're detained, unable to make bail, protesting their innocence, but facing the possibility of a really serious prison sentence or having to sort of reckon with a serious mistake they've made. Psychiatric medication can't fix that. And I've been really surprised over and over again by how helpful uh It has been, as far as what patients have told me, just to sort of acknowledge to someone that I can hear how much pain they're in. And what's the current mood now with COVID-19 among you, your patients, and the staff at Rikers? Yeah, people feel scared. Our medical service, I think, has done a really impressive job of screening and cohorting people in accordance with their exposure status and and their risk. But like you said, jails are extremely conducive to viral spread, and people really feel that. It's a really hard time to be in jail right now. And also, a lot of our patients and our staff, actually, but particularly our patients, are people of color who come from communities that are being hit really, really hard by this virus. And lots of them have lost friends or family members. So that also so it's just, it's really difficult to be detained when something tragic and, and traumatic is happening outside in your community. And it's scary for us too, for the clinical staff. I think that fear is sort of tempered by a sense of duty and our feeling that we're really privileged to be able to, to come to work and be helpful at a time that, that feels so dire for so many people. Crises like COVID-19 obviously bring significant suffering to vulnerable populations such as those in jail. But they can also help highlight changes that perhaps should have been made a long time ago. So I, I guess I'm wondering, have there been any positive changes in your mental health care practice, um, things that you hope might actually stick after the pandemic ends? 
in terms of how what this has done to mental health care at Rikers, there have been a couple things that have actually been interesting about providing mental health care during this time. One of which is that we've been operating under sort of a variance that uh, is relaxing the bureaucratic standards around how often patients need to be seen. So we're able all of a sudden to have a much more tailored approach to how often we're seeing patients. We have more flexibility that allows us to accommodate uh, patients' reluctance to take on the risk of coming down to our clinic. Lots of patients have said, I don't want to come to clinic just to say, hey, my meds are good. I feel fine. I want to continue them because that means I have to move through the jail. I have to get escorted by officers who are coming in from the community. I have to wait in a locked waiting area for who knows how long where there are other patients from different housing areas. I have to meet with a clinician in a room where other patients have been. And one of the hardest things in the jail really is, is that you lose your agency and your autonomy in so many ways. And that is so, so hard, particularly during this pandemic. So it's been really helpful to be able to say to a patient at the end of the visit, I understand it's a really stressful time to have to come down here, but I also want to make sure we have the opportunity to keep tabs on your symptoms and any side effects of your medication. When do you want to come down? Do you want to come see me in a week? You know, do you want to give it six weeks? Do you want to give it two months? That's our cap. We have to see patients every two months and more frequently if they have serious mental illness, but it's nice to be able to give patients a little bit more choice outside of some of those stricter constraints. And the other thing is that our census has been so much lower, which is amazing. There's been a lot of a lot of pressure to get people released because it is just so impossible to contain spread. You know, everybody's doing their best, but it's just very, very challenging to contain spread of this virus in jails. So because our census is so much lower than it's ever been during my three-year tenure of working here, we have a lot more time to spend with patients who may need some of that extra attention. But those are just a couple of the things that that I've noticed in the way my, my personal practice has changed since since this started. All right, Dr. Stossel, thanks very much for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. To get more information about Dr. Stossel and her work at Rikers, be sure to read her letter from New York, published today in the Lancet Psychiatry's June issue. You can find it on our website. And in other news. The Wellcome Trust, which plays a key role in research for mental health, has appointed a new chair. Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia, will be taking over for Eliza Manningham-Buller, who will be stepping down next year. You can read more about that at the Welcomes website. And finally, the U.S. unemployment rate has skyrocketed, according to latest official figures. With loss of work and income as key drivers of poor mental health, this is a key issue. Congress is debating new stimulus packages to directly help those impacted, but it's currently unclear what the outcome will be. Without a sufficient response, experts worry the economic damage for some might be permanent. That's it for this episode. Tune in again to hear the latest news and views on mental health from around the world. From the entire editorial team at The Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening and stay safe.